Welcome to Radical Love Live. You are listening to a recording of our first live event in a series exploring spirituality beyond institutions and ideology. This premiere was recorded on January 26, 2020 at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York City. The theme of this episode is Crisis and Change. Welcome here tonight. My name is David Gunger. This is John Arndt over on the piano and our lovely string section from here in New York. Brennan Smiley over here on the guitar. We're a band called The Brilliance. We make art that hopefully inspires empathy. And we're so honored to be here tonight uh, in this amazing, incredible space. Uh, we're going to quickly tune our instruments and then uh, we're going to sing a song over you. Give me doubt so I can see my neighbor as myself. Give me doubt that I may lay all my weapons on the ground. When the armor of God grows too heavy for Give me doubt Oh, give me doubt What be my courage now? My shield from more than them before we hear what they have to say a headline breaks and we start to hate again calling them names again we 
give our peace away I hope they see Cause I wanna see I hope we believe I wanna see I wanna see the
Thank you. That was wonderful. Thank you, everybody, for being here for our premiere episode of Radical Love Live. And I say episode because we're also, we're filming, we're recording. This will be part of our ongoing podcast series as well as the series of live events. So thank you for being here, part of making this happen for the first time. I'm Kelly Wilson, and uh, I'm one of the co-creators of this with uh, Mark Dilcom and the, uh, the Congregation of St. Savior here at the Cathedral. Um, and we want to tell you a little bit about how Radical Love Live came to be. When it comes to religion and spirituality, I am first and foremost a lifelong Christian. I started in an evangelical tradition and after a period of doubt and struggle and questions and time in the wilderness, I finally came to be in an Episcopal setting, this one. Um, although not as a congregant to start off with, I came as a sound tech. So usually you'll see me behind that soundboard rather than in front of the crowd. There are a lot of things I love about this church. I love the liturgy, the way that it connects us with history and with each other. I love the way that we interpret the scriptures, that we use faith and reason to interpret but the thing that I love the most about this church is its welcome, the radical welcome. This cathedral is built as a house of prayer for all people, and we really mean it. Our dean reiterates this so often that no matter who you are, no matter what you look like, no matter who you love, even if you don't know how much you believe, you are absolutely welcome here, and these doors of this sacred space are open to you. So when I finally became a member of this congregation after 20 years of listening to sermons, uh, I finally became confirmed in this church two years ago. Um, and in those classes is where I met Mark. Um, I really wanted to start something to let people know, let people like me know who over time who might have left their faith traditions because they didn't feel welcome, because they didn't feel like they could question or doubt, or they didn't feel like they could be themselves. I wanted to let them know that there's a space that they could come to that was safe, that they could be themselves, and they could just explore. And at first I was really just thinking about a kind of a speaker and music program that would let people know that, you know, maybe Christianity is a little cooler than you thought it would, was. Um, but after reading a lot about the, the cultural shifts that are going on right now and the changing spiritual landscape, um, including some of the teachings that I've gotten from our, our speakers who are here tonight, I realized that things are changing at such a tremendous rate that just having a really awesome band is not going to be enough, although we do have a really awesome band. <laughs> um, so I started talking with our vicar, uh, Father Stephen Lee, about this, and he said, you really need to talk with Mark, because um, Mark was also thinking about a similar kind of program, but from a completely different point of view. Uh, so Mark and I got to know each other a little better. We started sitting down. I learned about his experience in um, spiritual practice and contemplative prayer um, in spiritual wellness. And we started conceiving of something about what, what if we were to create a program that talks about spirituality, but it isn't necessarily 
religious. And it, as a Christian, as I said, it, it, first it gave me a little bit of pause to think about spirituality that it is outside of the bounds of religion or that crosses religion because I didn't want to water down my faith at all. And I, and I wanted to dignify other people's faiths because I, I do believe that the God who wants to reconcile God's self with people can speak in many languages, including religious languages. Um, it just so happens that mine is the, the language of Christianity. But then as we started talking, I started reading more about the concept of spirituality and started talking more with Mark, I realized that this whole point, the, the, the thing that gave me pause might have been moot because spirituality doesn't necessarily have to be religious. It can be. There, there's a lot of spirituality in the major religions of the world. And there's a lot of intersections but we can also talk about it in terms of a different domain. And we talk about this, this spirit and this spirit being enriched and looking for meaning and finding and achieving its highest goals that we can invite anyone into this space, regardless of their affiliation with religion, to explore those spiritual practices. And particularly if people have left traditions and in doing so have left behind the tools that they use to care for their spirit, we wanted to open up a space here where they could reconnect with their spirituality no matter how they felt about religion. Which means if, if you, wherever you feel, wherever you are on that spectrum of belief, this is a space where you're welcome and it's safe. And if somebody comes into this space and once again experiences what it means to be in a sacred space and they hadn't before, then we will have done our job. So again, thank you for being here for this opening event. Now I want to hand the stage over to, to Mark and tell his half of the story. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, guys. Ellie, thank you very much. Uh, it's great to see all these happy, shiny faces that I know. And um, I'm humbled and grateful that you're all here tonight for the premier event of uh, Radical Love Live. Uh, this is an amazing space in which to do this. It is a, a house of, uh, for all people who are welcome in here. And let me tell you what Radical Love Live means to me. It's about the word in the middle, love. Right? When we came up with the title, uh, it's not by accident that we selected that word, but you know, love, L-O-V-E. You know, this is a uniquely human experience. The word exists in all human civilizations, languages, and belief systems. Yet the word love is loaded with so many issues, probably more so than the word God. It's easy to say that we are called to love one another, but what happens is, when, what happens when we don't love ourselves? Right? That's my story. As a kid, I was broken by words. And perversely enough, love was one of them. I was figuring, just figuring out who I was when I was told that because of who I am, I'm a defect in the eyes of God and that I must repent and change if I wanted to be worthy of his love. Can you imagine that happening to an 11-year-old? I lived with that shame for 30-some years until I was brought to a point where I had no choice but to completely reassess my life. That was no easy task, but the hardest part was facing the one that broke me. That was religion, the word God, faith, spirituality, all of that. 
You know, some today, some years later, I've reclaimed all my wholeness. But members of my human family have not, nor will they, because the words and actions used against them just simply for who they are. So that's where the idea of radical love live came from. Something that needs to be done in a real and substantive way now. And a good way to start is to build a space like what we're doing here today, where people can come together without dogma and work on the real ways to end the suffering done in the name of God or any other word used to describe the divine. Spirituality in its seemingly infinite way, it manifests as part of the human experience. Everyone is impacted by spirituality in some way. It's universal. And this is why I lean heavily on a quote that we're not human beings having spiritual experiences, but rather we're spiritual beings having human experiences. I humbly describe myself as a Christian and how I got to this place in my own journey. And no one is more surprised than me that I'm here. But I believe there's a reason. As to do something with my own experiences that can help others know their wholeness, know their full value, and be free to live out their lives loving themselves as they are. Just by sharing my story. I'm not the only one. There's lots of us, right? And there's a way to get through to this. So... That's a little bit of where I come from, how I see Radical Love Life. I'm so happy you guys are here. Uh, So let's get this thing started. So let me introduce Maria French over there. We're excited to have her to talk about the future of faith, particularly Christian faith in an era of tremendous change. She's the founder and director of H&Co, formerly known as Hatchery LA. Maria is a teacher, storyteller, and faith futurist who works towards spiritual innovation and imagination by asking new questions of God, community, faith, and church. Previously, Maria had a 10-year tenure of working with theological schools, including Bethel University, United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, and the Twin Cities School of Theology. She holds a Master of Arts in Religion and Theology, as well as a Master in Arts in Christian Thought. She's currently engaged in doctoral work with Leslie Theological Seminary and the Cambridge Tract, studying the intersection of faith, theology, and culture in a world where the philosophical landscape is ever-changing. As a native New Yorker who now lives in Los Angeles by way of Minnesota and south of France, we'd like to welcome her home to talk. Thank you. I think I need to cut that bio down. It's so awkward to sit and listen to that. <laughs> well, it's so good to be here this evening for a multiple uh, multiplicity of reasons, not least of which to be here in New York City this evening with all of you, to be in this fabulous cathedral, and to be a part of this amazing inaugural event on behalf of Radical Love Live. And so I'm glad to see you, and I'm excited that this will be on the uh, internet waves in the weeks to come. A few weeks ago, uh, John and myself and Mark and Kelly, we got on a video call to discuss this evening, and Mark and Kelly spoke with us about how 
the theme of tonight and this, you know, very first launch episode was going to be all about crisis and change. You sort of have to be living under a rock these days if you're not sensing that. We're in the middle of crisis uh, everywhere we look, but particularly in faith crisis and, and crises of religion and so on and so forth. They wanted us to talk a little bit about um, the changes within religious environments and what spirituality can mean in these new spaces that these changes and environments have opened up. Um, I think we can kind of all agree that we're feeling changes within our religious communities, within our faith circles, uh, within our churches. We know that attendance is waning, the money is drying up, uh, there's clearly a loss of influence and affluence, but we don't always know why and we can't always articulate it. And so part of my work and part of what I do is help people articulate and help tell the stories and the narratives that are enacting upon our faith, not always in super helpful ways, but that's the first step to opening the conversation. Because you look around and it's the sense of, you know what, we're not quite in Kansas anymore. And we feel that tension and we feel that rub all the time. So in the middle of this uh, video call that we had a few weeks ago, I received the most utterly disturbing news from Mark and Kelly that I have ever been uh, requested to do. And that was that I get 10 minutes exclusively with you tonight only. <laughs> and I don't think I've ever done anything in 10 minutes. I, I don't even know that I like do introductions in 10 minutes. But um, I thought to myself, okay, you as an audience, uh, given what's out there on social media, given what emails you might have received or what you've heard from the parish or friends about tonight, what is bringing you here? What has provoked you here? What questions do you have that have led you through these doors tonight to hear us speak for better or for worse? And I thought, gosh, what do I want to say to them? What do I want them to know from me in only 10 minutes? Because there's so much that I want you to know. There's so much I want to tell you. And um, a little bit later in the program tonight, John and I are gonna have a really healthy dialogue and we're looking forward to that. But what do I want you to know from me right now? Well, a lot, a lot of things. I, I wanna talk to you about the state of affairs of Christianity in the West and how that's affecting church at the moment in North America and in the US. I wanna talk to you about the crisis that narrative and story is currently in based on the postmodern landscapes. I wanna talk to you about how our future has failed us in regards to um, the fragmentation of digital capitalism and how that's enacting upon our faith and all that it's left in its wake. I wanna talk to you about some of what I think are the most important events of the 20th century that has also impacted the landscape of our faith where we find ourselves right now in 21st century Christianity. Because I don't think without understanding really the last 100 years of trajectory that our faith at the moment can be fully examined. I wanna to talk to you about the shifting religious landscapes and the new cultural contexts and the new economic realities and the new digital horizons and how all of these things are acting as a pressure cooker upon our 21st century Western Christianity. I wanna to talk to you about how new atheism has reared its ugly head and its dreadfully boring total snooze agenda. I wanna to talk to you about Generation X and Millennials and Gen Z and give you stats on all that stuff. So very many things. Because you see, I believe that to claim Christianity in the 21st century is a matter of real and deep responsibility. It's a matter of examining our mechanisms for meaning making and about what it means to believe or to have belief about something and what that all looks like embodied in the world. It's a matter to take quite seriously by all of us actually 
and to truly know and understand what it is we do when we claim Christ or any religion for that matter. These aren't easy conversations. And so I applaud all of you very courageous and brave people for coming here tonight to figure out what this is all about. I absolutely give it up for Mark and Kelly for inaugurating these conversations on a regular basis. These, these are not easy things to do. They're actually really scary because what they do is they shake our identities. They shake our foundations. They shake our epistemological bases, our hermeneutical lenses, and any kind of mechanism for gaining any kind of knowledge at all. But the good news is, is that we're having them, that we're actually sticking around to have them, and that we're having them together. So with that being said, I know that Mark and Kelly want me to touch on a few specific things tonight. Um, at H&Co, we call this redrawing the map. And we have to redraw the map because the business the church is doing or has been doing no longer fully addresses the business of the 21st century. So a quick word on religion, a quick word on culture, a quick word on economics, and a quick word on digitality, if those things can be quick. So over the next few minutes, I'm just going to let you know, I'm going to be throwing a lot of information at you. And it might frustrate you because I'm telling you so much, and you're probably just like, slow down, we just want one of those things, not a dozen. But what I'm trying to do is not get you to leave with every single last bit of information I give you tonight, but I want you to leave with how you felt as I was telling you these things. I want you to leave with this sense of there's a lot of work that we need to do and there's a lot of stuff that we have to faithfully and thoughtfully think through for ourselves and for our communities and for our futures. So in terms of some of the shifts that we're seeing in religious landscapes, um, you, some of you have heard of these stats, you know, the reason why Radical Love Live exists is even is because of the conversation around the nuns and duns and how people are leaving Christianity in the U.S. in droves. At the top of that list would be Catholic, Protestant mainline, and just second is evangelicalism. And right now, the nuns are reaching into about a 60 million ballpark figure. And given that we have about 256 Americans in, um, in uh, the United States, that's a really huge number. Um, the interesting thing about those who are staying within the nervation of Christianity is that half of them are switching their denomination affiliation within their lifetime more than once. So something's not fitting and they're searching again and again and again even though they don't want to leave altogether. We know about six in ten millennials are claiming some kind of church engagement, so that's 60%. Um, and we know the staggering figure, this report just came out this year and you can access it through Barna or Impact 360 Institute. 4% um, of Gen Z is claiming a biblical worldview. Now, Gen Z is the new generation after the millennials. I know in church we love to talk about the millennials and what are we gonna do with the millennials. Well, I'm gonna tell you something. I'm gonna be 37 next week. I'm a millennial, we're done. <laughs> you don't have to worry about reaching us. If you haven't reached us, move on to Gen Z. Um, <laughs> but 4% of what makes up 69 million children and youth are claiming to have a biblical worldview. That's our future. And what we're feeling is it's actually our present. 
a word on culture. So I would say in the 20th century, there's four things that I would want us to kind of think about as we're thinking about 21st century Christianity. The first thing is the secularization thesis or theory that came out of the academy in the middle of the century that basically proposed, hey, guess what? As society progresses and becomes more rational and more reasonable, Christianity and religion and faith will all fade into the background as this imaginary friend that we never actually really needed. And the academics and the atheists had a lot of hope in that, but guess what? The exact opposite has happened. People have actually never been more interested in religion and spirituality and faith as they are now. So the thing that actually faded into the background was secularism. I know there's a lot of people in this country, particular of a conservative bent, who are afraid of secular humanism and all of those things. I can tell you those things are absolutely not going to happen in our lifetime, not the way this trajectory is going. The second thing I think that is important for us to be mindful of is the Death of God movement that happened in the late 60s. Some of you are old enough to remember that infamous historic Time magazine cover in 1966 that raised the question, is God dead? And sent shockwaves throughout the religious US everywhere. That's a throwback to philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche of the late 19th century and his parable of the madman in which he has this fictitious character run into the center of town and exclaims, God is dead and you have killed him. Here's my paraphrase. You have killed him by naming him. You have killed him by containing him. You have killed him by knowing what can only be unknowable. And you have killed God by making possible what is only impossible. And that reverberated right into 1966. And the third thing I want to say about the last hundred years is the rise of the religious right. So not only was the religious right uh, an answer back to the 1966 magazine cover, but it rose to power through its very racist agenda. People like Jerry Falwell and Bob Jones and Paul Rayrick, they wanted to keep their schools and their communities and their faith institutions white. Um, African Americans were not allowed, people of color were not allowed, interracial couples were not allowed, but what happened, they started to lose their tax exempt status, they had to make some exceptions, but they had to get the evangelicals in America on board with their agenda and they moved it forward. And over the next few years, uh, Interesting little trivia. I don't want to get too far off topic here because I'm trying to go really quickly. But um, one of the main poster child issues for the religious right at the moment is abortion. But back in the late 60s and early 70s, that was a non-starter. That was a non-issue. In fact, if you look at some of these guys, including uh, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention at the late 60s, they were completely pro-choice and for women's right to choose. What they did was, in order to move their racist agendas forward, they used pro-life as a scapegoat. And so they were able to lift that issue up and mask their own racist causes. And we can't really understand the predicament that American Christianity is in at the moment if we don't understand how the religious right came to power so many years ago. And the last thing I think we need to know about the last century is what 9-11 did for the interest or the resurgence of interest in religion and spirituality monotheistic religions and fundamentalism across the board. The interest went right through the roof because you had this major event that was done in the name of religion and God in a monotheistic religion. In terms of economics, we're living in a time of digital capitalism, consumer capitalism, surveillance capitalism. It just keeps going. We have this unbridled wealth and growth fetish which cannot be sustained. There's no sustainability there. And this isn't about talking about against capitalism or for capitalism and let's stick it to the man and rage against the machine. But this is about recognizing that we need to move forward with a God consciousness and a Christ consciousness when it comes to very complex issues such as this one. When we think about digitality and all the new technological advances, we have to talk about things like the post-human conversation, the transhuman conversation, artificial intelligence, creative reproduction. 
what, how technology is employing humanity and what it is doing for the changing face of who we are as a people, as a community. We have to talk about theological matters like the Imago Dei or the image of God. Is it an anthropomorphic one? Is it a theological one? And what does it mean in light of some of these new technological advances? This is the stuff that's happening. And we don't recognize how this is enacting upon our Christian landscapes we are not going to be able to articulate it. We are not going to be able to understand it. And a lot of people will walk away because we cannot reconcile some of these things. This is why we need to innovate. This is why we need to reimagine. This is why we need to reconfigure. And when I speak of innovation and imagination, I don't do it to be fancy or sexy or like showy or to use really like fabulous words. I use it because I really believe that it's the future. I think it's the hope for a time of complexity that is riddled with paradox, but restless in the wake of so much loss. Mirsal Wolf, uh, he says that Christianity is actually malfunctioning in the world at the moment. He says that we're, we're malfunctioning because of temptation, and he defines temptation as the power of systems, and he calls this misconstrued faith. This is what we are seeing in the world at the moment, a misconstrued faith, a malfunctioning of Christianity. Franco Berardi, he wrote this book a few, years ago, a few years ago called After the Future, and he says, what happens to an institution, to a people, to a community, when it loses hold of its future? He says it goes into crisis. And I think that is what we're seeing right now in our churches and in our landscape across the country. Karl Marx uh, famously is always quoted as talking about religion and Christianity as the opiate of the people. And he says it insulates from reality and it consoles people with a dream of heavenly bliss. And he was right to criticize using that language because religion is not a way out into the world. In fact, it exists as a way into the world, but somehow we've gotten that really upside down. And Wolf says when Christianity functions only as a soothing or performance-enhancing drug, aka feel-good self-help, that faith is in fact malfunctioning. Because human flourishing needs to be the point of all of this. It needs to be in the center of your faith communities. That is the point. And if it's not, then it's malfunctioning. Now I have a lot of thoughts on categories of malfunctioning. I have some thoughts on theological malfunctioning and methodological malfunctioning, and maybe it'll come up later. Don't have time for it now. But all of this is a little bit about what Mark and Kelly wanted me to communicate to you, this idea of crisis and change. Now there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Precisely our time of greatest challenge is exactly our time of greatest opportunity. Because you see, the future, and to some extent the present, has absolutely been blown to bits. But the good news is, that means it's wide open for recreation. Or if I can be biblical, and a blessing, new creation. So, if there's one thing that I want you to take away from me tonight, and then I'm going to hand it over here. I want to quote my very brilliant colleague, Barry Taylor. And he always says, there is no one singular solution because there is no one singular reality. And I wanted to throw some of this information at you tonight because I wanted to show you, look at all these sub-stories. Look at all these sub-contexts. Look at the multivalency and the multiplicity of realities out there in the world only within the West, or we can even say just within the US. But yet for a very long time now, we've tried to peddle a faith in a Christianity that's a one-size-fits-all, and that's not quite the way it's going to work anymore. 
And we need to start sitting in the tension of some of this stuff and wrestling with some of this stuff in order to find a way forward. So thank you. Thank you, Maria. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the brilliance. grateful to 
have John Tatanamo with us here tonight to talk about his vision of spirituality in a post-truth age. John is an associate professor of theology and world religions at Union Theological Seminary. He is also the author of The Imminent Divine, God, Creation, and the Human Predicament, and the forthcoming book, Circling the Elephant, A Comparative Theology and Religious Diversity. And that's coming even more quickly than we thought, right? That's this week. Um, he teaches courses on comparative theology, theologies of religions, as well as a course on Gandhi and King. I've had the, the opportunity myself to hear John speak and hear him teach, and I've even heard him sing. Uh, we are really happy to have him here. Please join me in welcoming John Tatanamo. I promise I'm going to leave the singing to the professionals. There's no competing with that. Now, as you've heard, I'm a theologian and a philosopher. <clears throat> so that means I find it impossible to begin a conversation without definitions. So let me say in brief compass what I mean by spirituality and connect that to our theme for this evening, namely crisis. That we are living in a time of peril is not news to anyone here. But naming and understanding the crises we face with care requires insight and careful collective deliberation. It's something we will do together. I will call to mind today three crises. But what I really want to say is that each of these crises is at rock bottom, a matter of spirit. The first crisis that consumes the attention of many of us here is, of course, the climate crisis. But those two words cannot capture the gravity of the planetary disruptions that we are now facing. Mass species extinctions, desertification, entire swaths of the planet, perhaps even all of Australia, rendered in uninhabitable. A lot is contained in those two impossible words. At the very same time, we also face a global political crisis in which authoritarians everywhere blatantly lie to majorities in their countries to win elections by means of us versus them politics. In order to cultivate what an anthropologist called majorities with a minority complex, does that ring true to you? In the US, of course, it's white Americans, most especially, but not exclusively white evangelicals, who are pitted against black and brown Americans. In India, the country of my birth, the Hindu right betrays the legacy of Gandhi, Nehru, and Ambedkar by pitting Hindus against the Muslim minority. But this brand of divide and conquer politics is always and without fail a cynical attempt on the part of economic elites to maintain and consolidate their own power. It never actually helps those whom it claims to help. And speaking of elites, and this is my third crisis, we learned just this past week, the day before Davos, that the world's 2,153 billionaires have more wealth than 4.6 billion people. 
who make up 60% of the world's population. 2,000 people have more wealth than 4.6 billion people. Our global economic system is ruptured beyond repair and marked by staggering inequality. But the problem is not just inequality, but also that we measure economic well-being by GDP growth. But please tell me, tell anyone, how it's possible to have infinite growth on a finite planet. Our economic system is out of joint with reality. It is itself a lie. The three crises I've named are, of course, all intertwined and mutually reinforcing. They together bring us to the brink of what sociologist Daniel Sellermeyer calls omnicide, the killing of everything. Tonight, on the eve of International Holocaust Remembrance Day, we remember that Raphael Lemkin, a Polish Jew, had to come up with the word genocide in order to name the gravity of what he experienced. But now, Sellermeyer argues that we need a new term, one even bigger than ecocide, to name, as I said, the killing of everything, of the sort that we witnessed recently in Australia, where it seems perhaps as many as a billion animals died. Okay, enough of this gloomy litany, you might be thinking. I came here to talk about spirituality and think about spirituality. What do these crises have to do with spirituality? Everything. These crises are all a manifestation of what Martin Luther King Jr. called a malady of the spirit. But what is a spiritual malady? And what do we even mean by spirituality? Spirituality for me is a matter of longing, of yearning, of desiring. Desiring what? Genuine spirituality is a yearning for the true, the real, the authentic. That, of course, leads to a heavy-duty philosophical question. John, what do you mean by the real or the true? For purposes of simplicity, I will say it boils down to one word. Connection. Connection. To be true, to be real, is to be in intimate relation to the world, to each other, to our authentic selves, and the great mystery known by many names. God, Buddha nature, Shunyata, Brahman, the nameless. To be is to be in communion with self, other beings, the natural world, and the mystery. Because we are relational creatures through and through, who are meant for and made to be in relation, we are at root desiring beings. We long to be in authentic intimacy with others and with ourselves. But our true and inbuilt longings have been violated. 
The human predicament then can be described as alienation, rupture, and estrangement from each other, from the natural world, from the holy mystery, and even from ourselves. Spirituality then is the work of healing those ruptures by healing our desires. If you tell me what you desire, you tell me what lies at the core of your spirituality. Tell me what shapes and controls your longing, and you tell me what your spiritual disciplines are. By the way, I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to be nosy, so you can, you can relax. Because we are passionate creatures who long to be back in relation to that from which we are estranged, our desires are vulnerable to hijacking. Broken and wounded hearts like ours are vulnerable to false promises. In a world of disconnection, our hearts can be colonized and rendered captive to inauthentic promises of connection and relation. Nationalism speaks to our yearning to be part of something larger than ourselves. But it's a false promise. So. Also do racism and ethnocentrisms of various sorts. We want to be intimately tied together, but if someone tells us the lie that we belong only to those who are like ourselves by virtue of our skin color, ethnicity, religion, or national origin, and not to some darker and detestable them, then that lie contorts our longings. It distorts our spirituality and our desires are wounded and even rendered toxic. In our current condition, our desires are no longer our own as our truest and own most de desire for each other, for communion, for love and compassion have been disfigured by these lies of nationalism, racism, militarism, unfettered economic growth. We are being tutored to desire the fossil fuel status quo, taught to desire our privilege at their expense. Markets, advertising, and social media make us crave status and wealth, offering us the promise of living in the limelight. I had to men mention Rush. I didn't sing it though, so be grateful. Markets, advertising, social media, and the wealth they promise our promises for completion, but they can never satisfy the authentic longings of the heart. If spirituality is a matter of what we do with our desires, then the spiritual disciplines which shape our longings are at present no longer in our own hands. No religion has ever shaped our hearts more thoroughly and more completely than the market. Religious institutions like this one, I feel bad for the dean over there, they get you for maybe an hour or two a week. But the market has you dreaming capitalist dreams while you sleep.
Some worry that people like me, who are shaped by Christian and Buddhist spiritualities, are questionably, questionably syncretistic and so heretical. But I would insist that most American Christians, I'm not sparing myself, are multiply religious because all our hearts are being shaped by more, by far more, um, are being shaped far more by capitalist soul craft than by anything that happens in buildings like this. We're also being tutored by false promises, the false promises of nationalism and ethnocentrism. And all those false desires, all those false claimants to spirituality shape us more exhaustively and thoroughly, I fear, than most churches can possibly manage to do. So I want to end with some questions for yourself, for me. What are you wittingly or unwittingly allowing to shape your desiring? That is your spirituality. No one is not spiritual. The essential human task for this moment is to take up spiritual disciplines that allow us to reclaim our own desiring and direct them in the service of healing. Healing our hearts from the toxins of racist, heteropatriarchal, and capitalist craving. As we emerge from captivity to these cravings, we might just recover our innate longing for justice, dignity, freedom, compassion, and love, and cultivate an authentic spirituality for authentic connection. As Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there also is your heart. Another song from the brilliance. I want to know how it feels to be in love, to be in love. It feels like no one is free. Life's a game you have to play until it's done. When I was young, the world showed me its miracles. Now I don't see none. Cause yesterday, the world taught me to fear and cope. just feel numb to everything
it be easier to die? Turn around, run and hide, never to return again. have to face it I could make a case for it I could make a case for it but I want to know how it feels to hope again to breathe again I want to know tell me Thank you, thank you. I got my paper backwards here, but uh, thank you, that was awesome. Um, we're now at a point where we're going to take a little bit of a commercial break. It's kind of like when you're watching PBS and they stop and they come in and say, if you want to watch more great programming like this in the future, look in your programs and see how you could donate right now. Um, anyway, uh, we also wanted to tell you about um, upcoming events. Uh, the Radical Love Live live series is going to be held on the fourth Sunday of every month up to June. This is our premiere season. Um, this one is not being live streamed, but our plan is that the other ones will be live streamed as we're also here in the cathedral experiencing live. And we have a wide variety of speakers and musicians who are going to be here. Um, our next episode, which will be February 23rd, um, is about marginalization and being metaphorically in the wilderness. Uh, our featured guests will be writer and lecturer Jonathan Merritt, mentor and activist Alicia Crosby, and musical guests will be the Cathedral Choir's own Jamette Pittman, along with uh, blues guitarist and singer Tosh Neal. So please put that on your calendar, February 23rd, and it will still be here in the Cathedral. Yes. So um, basically, you know, Obviously, we just talked about the first upcoming events here, but uh, obviously, inside the program itself, as Kelly just said, you'll see a way that if you, uh, you can text uh, directly to us, uh, and it'll be a $25 contribution to help for our cause here, because it does cost a little bit of money to put all this together. That's one way to do it. You can also go to our website, Radical Love Live, uh, to support us in, this, uh, in our venture here. So, you know, that's, uh, we're onto something good here. We know that, uh, but it takes a lot of effort, and uh, you know your support here is meaningful to us. If there's anything you can do to share the good news of what we're up to here, 
because you know we're you know I don't think there is a a roadmap for us to follow here. We're just doing it, and uh, so uh, we're so grateful that you're here. But it really does uh, take you know folks to to join in on what we're doing here. So thank you very much, and. Uh, and uh, we're also happy to see how many people had their phones out, taking pictures, yeah. taking videos. Um, we are, our username is Radical Love Live on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, if you want to use a hashtag, we've been using hashtag Radical Love Live, trying to keep it simple. Um, we'd also now, we'd like to invite Maria and John back up here for a short uh, discussion amongst ourselves. Um, there's also instructions within the program. If you have questions that you want to ask of any of our guests, including our musical guests, um, there's a way to text those in. I don't know that we'll be able to get to those questions tonight, but tomorrow we're going into the podcast studio. We're going to have kind of a post-game discussion, so keep an eye out for that. So there'll be a podcast coming out soon where we'll be uh, asking some of your questions to our guests tonight. Hey. Hi. Thank you both for the informative talks. And it's, it's interesting because we talk so much about crisis and change. And for a lot of people um, in the religious world, crisis is fearful. It, it, you know, it causes people to hold on more tightly to whatever it is that is either familiar or you know, just makes sense. As things are changing, are there also moments for opportunity in there as well as fear of loss? Short answer, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think she has a lot to say on yeah, that. Yeah, I don't um, think you have a short answer. So, you know, it's so interesting because we kind of want these quick fixes and we want to turn around this transformation really quickly. Um, but you know, it took us a really long time to get here. It took us generations to get here and it could potentially take us generations to sort of innovate and reimagine the future. But in terms of like what we can do right now, I would just say it like on a practical level, there is a grieving period because there is so much loss. And as much as we want to like tie it up with a nice neat bow and be like, everything happens for a reason and I valued that part of my life and blah, 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 which is totally great and I do the same, there is still a lot of loss. And you are losing things. You are losing something, maybe if you're moving from one theological framework to another or what one God construct to another, you're saying goodbye to that, something that was a major part of who you were and a part of your identity. So I would say first thing is let yourself go through that grief process as long as you need to sit in the sackcloth and ashes cry sit in the lack mm -hmm. <laughs> um, sit in the dark for a little bit it's it's very needed um, so I, I would say that's my my first piece of advice and then in terms of change and like where to go next and where the hope is I think it's all about like what our context need and what the demands and maybe demand isn't the right word but you know uh, what's coming out of the ecology of our social locations and and you know the economy of our, our communities because the spiritual needs that we identify are going to be different from community to community so I think we just kind of start start there Wow John want to have a go? Uh, very briefly. I, <laughs> I, I do think that if I'm right in offering a kind of diagnosis that I did of the predicament that we face in this particular historical moment, the crisis is in fact an invitation to leave behind false allegiances, idolatries of various sorts, idolatries of 
racism and ethnocentrism and I think a toxic form of capitalism that is killing us. And giving up what we, uh, what is literally soul destroying, however much like a crisis it feels, is also a blessing. It, it, it is fundamentally about moving into a larger vision of life because we have to. We have put ourselves in a position where we have no other choice. So uh, the, the thing I don't know how to answer is that usually this kind of soul reclamation project that I'm advocating is usually a matter of time and imagination and labor and patience. And yet I'm haunted by that decade mark that we have within which to accomplish some really major structural systematic change if we're to save ourselves from the very worst of the climate crisis. And that's something the church really has to think through. Mm -hmm. how, do we, how do we deal with the fact that soul work is time consuming and yet the crisis brings us with urgency? Um, and I don't really have an answer to that. And uh, I, I hope we can talk about those things over these uh, many events. Absolutely, absolutely. Particularly for those who you know who are bought into the system because they think you know, maybe the world is ending tomorrow anyway. So we'll just get on oh, yes. with it. Is uh, they've been kicking that, moving that goalpost for quite some time. <laughs> yeah. So I have a question. There are some folks that are in this room and beyond that would see this that have nothing to do with their spirituality or their faith, and they don't want to come back into the church. How do we reach out? What does this look like? What how do we break past this? Because we're just, it's this barrier is as solid as this music stand. And it's unfortunate, right? Because we need each other. And yet there's this division. What do you, how would you see this? Well, I'm a saint when I'm alone. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm with other people, they tell me otherwise. <laughs> I mean, the work that needs to be done has to be done together. There, uh, solo spirituality, right? Th th there are moments where we have to pray in our closets, to use the ancient phrase. But the work of spirituality is fundamentally, as I've argued, to bring us back into robust and enriching relations with each other. And you don't do that alone. You just don't. And as for arguing that you don't have a spirituality, I think I made a pretty compelling case that your default spirituality is likely to be whatever the cultural ethos you're swimming in is. So you do have a spirituality. The only question is, is it a worthy one? You know, uh, I mean, I said I wouldn't sing, but I'm always reminded of, of Bob Dylan, which is not singing, you see. <laughs> uh, at least the late Dylan, right? You got to serve somebody. <laughs> and you are serving somebody. It might be the devil. It might be the Lord. It might be the market. He didn't have that line. <laughs> but you are serving somebody, and that is your spirituality. So the invitation is to reclaim uh, something worthy of the name spirituality. And it doesn't have to be here, though I think places like this that try to do this intentionally, deliberately, safely, and open-heartedly are places that are worth betting on. 
Um, but there are Buddhist communities also, a number of other sources by which people are trying to reclaim this work of healing. Yeah, um, you know, this is something that I think a lot about because it's a tricky question because I don't assume that everybody outside of these walls actually wants to be inside of them. Right, and, and the work that I do is not about evangelization or proselytizing people to come back. It's really seeing where they're at and helping them get to the next step that they want to be at. And what I find is the majority of the nuns and the duns and those who are post a lot of this stuff are a little bit angry, quite frustrated, bitter, traumatized, but they do want a faith engagement. They actually do want a robust engagement with some kind of belief to be part of a larger situation, a larger story, a larger community. Um, and that's why we do this work. I am not looking, if someone has left the church or has never been in the church and they're really happy and they're finding meaning in their lives somehow, then I bless that. And I go, great, like we're on these parallel tracks and we're finding meaning. Um, Schubert Ogden, um, a favorite 20th century theologian of mine, uh, he defines faith uh, by saying that life is worth the living of it. Faith is saying that life is worth the living of it. So how are you finding that life is worth the living of it? What is your, Religion has always been humanity's mechanism for meaning making, so how are you doing that? Um, so I, I think that's the first thing I would say is examine and evaluate, do, do you want to be engaging inside of, not these walls per se, but the, the walls of faith and the walls of church, because there are so many avenues to do that. Um, you know, we're, we're constantly looking at new theological frameworks. What does it look like to write new parables, to, to tell uh, stories of theological realities that are transformative, and, and build new metrics of stuff. It's not about like how many people are in pews or what the tithes are, but like what are the new metrics that are coming out of these new communities? How are we measuring transformation and spiritual growth? So there's actually, I think, a lot of other questions we have to grapple with before we say, how do we get them in? Mm. Like, who, who, who wants to come in, and why is an in out? <laughs> uh, anyway, that's another, another situation. But. To, to turn that idea, sort of turn it around, and think about people within religious institutions who are committed to them, who may even work at them. Uh, to think about, there's a pull between sort of ancient creedal systems and a poll to say, well, now I have sort of new information or that I'm following my desires more than the creed, even if I've been told maybe my desires aren't always to be followed. How do we navigate that dialectic between you know, the, the comfort and the instruction of creedal systems and this pull from outside to kind of also kind of blossom out into the the culture as well. Yeah, that's complex and it's super messy. Um, you know, obviously there's, you know, the favorite theological phrase, the, the Apostles' Creed, and there is no creed but Christ. Um, but we're, we're mediators of that Christ and we're mediators of God in those theological realities. And I say this all the time and some people clap and some people boo. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, God is only as good as our interpretation of God to people and Christ is only as good as our interpretation of Christ and Scripture is only good as our interpretation of Scripture to people. We're mediating these things and these stories. Um, but I think that creeds exist for us like we don't exist for creeds like we're not in service to creeds creeds are in service to our own spiritual formation and so when we find them waning we innovate them i know that's fighting words in here um but that's my contribution i guess to this question john we have always been I'll tell you a secret making it up as we go along <laughs> 
This is simply my priest is here. <laughs> They are too. <laughs> the question is whether our human creativity is infused by something larger than itself, to which it is musical, resonant, and accountable. Faith is always a matter of creativity. What are the ingredients by which that creativity happens? Well, usually a faith has a very vast or religious tradition. There's an immense millennia-long repertoire. Myths, narratives, metaphysics, symbol systems, rituals, physical spaces, right? So there are all those uh, ingredients in any particular tradition's repertoire. And out of that repertoire, religious communities cultivate what I call interpretive schemes, some way of looking at the world, and some set of therapeutic regimes such that what we say about the world and our place in it actually is implemented in social and human bodies. But within any given tradition, people have been using that vast repertoire in innumerable and countless ways. The history of religious traditions is a history of creativity. So our faith Uh, tradition is like a pantry in a spice cabinet out of which each of us is cooking up a hopefully appetizing and life-giving Christian faith wow. that heals, that does the work of justice, that brings love into, into being. So uh, that creativity is the work of every Christian, not just theologians. The other thing I'd say, of course, is that these repertoires have never been Uh, cleanly bounded. Things are flowing and in and out of those in remarkable ways. So I think creativity has just always been part of the story. The creeds are at best to be sung and prayed with. They are to shape and inform a kind of musical capacity for creativity with this vast repertoire so that we're not making it up as we go along as though nothing came before us. Right, right. And we're just ex nihilo uh, up to stuff. Uh, so I think that's, that's um, and of course we, we're always doing that over the course of a human life. If I believe the same thing now that I did when I was 12, uh, I'd be in a bad way. <laughs> One of the things that we talked about early in the show is the, <clears throat> the intersection between religion and spirituality. And that's really what this experience is about. And we heard a couple of different definitions about spirituality and religion. I love that idea that religion is a way in and religion is a way of connecting. Um, are there some other ways that we could talk about the distinctions between spirituality and religion or are they always going to be intertwined? And it's really just to kind of help us also, we're learning through this experience as much as everyone in the audience is to talk about our definitions of religion and spirituality, and Mark and I both talked about our definitions of spirituality early on. Are there some other words or other phrases we could use to, to define our own religion and spirituality? Well, John is the spiritual <laughs> guy here, um, but I'll, I'll give my little bit of two cents and then he'll say something fabulously eloquent um, and well-researched and educated and probably yeah, published. Yeah, don't build up yeah. the <laughs> Um, you know, uh, it, it, we talk a lot about the group of um, spiritual but not religious people, and they've identified as that. 
I, I totally affirm that we're all spiritual and that we're all serving something, um, but I don't really like to describe myself in terms of spiritual only because, and I'm just telling you this, like I'm pretending we're at like a coffee shop and like these people aren't listening. Um, but when I use the term spiritual for me, thank, exactly, thank you, uh, it feels really disintegrated. And I love the way John talks about spirituality because he talks about it in a super holistic way. But for me, it's like, okay, I'm spiritual and that's one category of my life. And then I'm this and then I'm that and I'm that. So it's like to say, oh, I have this spiritual part of me. It's just a little bit complicated for me. So I think when I describe my faith, I'm definitely not your, you know, typical Christian, I suppose, but I still identify as Christian um, because for better or for worse, this is my narrative. This is my story. I've devoted my life to the claims of Christ and the work and the mission of the New Testament and making all things new and everything that was taught. Um, but in some ways, and it depends on who I'm talking to, I describe myself post a lot of things. So I'll describe myself oftentimes as um, post-theist, post-Christian, post-church, even post-God. And I don't mean post-theist like atheist. Those are two very different things. Post-theist is just past those traditional notions of God and theism that we've all kind of lived under those notions for so long and still kind of working my way through that. So I think rather than using words like religion and spiritual, that for me and my communities are really weighted down with a lot of baggage. Um, a lot of us have chosen to use this word post and John also has a thing or two to say about posts. So. <laughs> a thing or two. There you go, your commercial. So um, the first thing to say about this entire conversation is that we ought to remember that prior to the encounter of the West with the rest, broadly speaking, most of the world's religious traditions had no word for something called religion. If we meant by that word some domain of life that was clearly distinguishable from every other domain of life. But among the things that the rest had to do, often under the force of weapons, is to learn to translate our word religion into whatever categories they found neighboring. And often there weren't any such categories. And even today, our language itself reminds us often that even for us, the, the very idea that one part of our life is religious and other parts are not doesn't quite actually capture things. So for example, even today in Catholics, one can talk, in, in Catholic circles, we can talk about religious priests and secular priests. Right? And the religious priest is somebody who's in, in an order, a, Je, a Jesuit or a Franciscan, etc. And a secular priest is your parish priest who doesn't belong to one of the monastic orders. So the word itself reminds us that it, it doesn't mean what you think it means. Right. So uh, I'm really dubious and doubtful about the, the, this, this notion religion. I'm actually going to be teaching an entire course on that <laughs> starting on Tuesday. <laughs> so for me, this would be a, a forever conversation. I think the word spiritual is getting traction especially if it's preceded by the BNR, spiritual but not religious, SBNR, mm -hmm. because people are finding the forms of religiosity that they grew up with unconvincing for a variety of reasons that were exhaustively mapped out, brilliantly, I might say. Um, so I don't need to go there again. But the word spiritual seems to be now taking on this, this, this expanded... Um, range of meanings precisely as the R gets emptied out, right? Do you know what I mean? 
as the R is getting emptied out, the word spirituality has to do more. And I think at its best, it names something like a longing for reconnection uh, with some comprehensive way of looking at the world and finding a place in it, and then doing something such that we're not merely reading the recipe, right, uh, to use, but we're actually taking the medicine, right? So uh, when I teach Buddhism in classes, I don't have lots of students saying, ah, I got it, and then run out of the classroom because they've been enlightened. I'm a pretty good teacher, but by and large, <laughs> that doesn't happen. Not yet, anyway, because I'm, I'm basically describing the tradition, right? I'm not actually compelling people, I don't have that authority, to undertake the regimes by which a Buddhist worldview is internalized in, into the body. Spirituality now seems to have that force, a longing to put into practice alternative and healing ways of being in the world. So I'm actually really happy about the way in which we're using the word spirituality. I just want to be sure to tell people that your spirituality may not be what you think it is. <laughs> right, right, right. And my spirituality remains shaped I hold myself accountable by, by the market more than by my Christianity or my Buddhism. I have yet to set myself free and perhaps never will from, you know, the desire to have a, you know, nice Manhattan home. It's impossible, so I can let that go. <laughs> you know, but the, the way in which the desires are, are, are being shaped by, by the, by, as I said, the market and other mechanisms, that's our spirituality. Uh, I just want people to realize that, lest they think that spirituality is always something loosey-goosey and fruity and wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for this conversation. I look forward to carrying this on tomorrow yes. when we're in the podcast studio. Thank you for your questions. We hope that you're sending in some questions to keep us on our toes tomorrow. Could you uh, say that again to them, how they're sending the questions? In the, in the bulletin, there's a number that you can text a question to. You, que you text Radical Love Live 729 and then your question to 22333 and it'll show up on my phone and we'll go through them all tomorrow. So thank you. With that, I'd like to invite the band back up to the stage for a while. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you, John. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, the brilliance. This next song is called Earth, and it was written for Earth Day. Thank you. 
The intention of our time together is not merely to talk, but also actually to, to put something into action, into our bodies. So uh, I'd like to guide us through a very, very brief meditation. But it's a visualization meditation keeping with the theme for this part of the event called practicing acceptance. 
It's variously called in Buddhist communities benefactor practice or loving kindness practice, but it's slightly adapted. And here's the adaptation. I want you to call to mind a moment in your life when you felt deeply seen, cherished, loved. And when I point to the moment in which we do that, imagine that that is actually happening right now. You're re-inhabiting that moment. The moment can be with a pet who just adores you, or a beloved person, or a spiritual mentor, or even a spiritual figure. But some moment in which you felt cherished and seen. I think of this as a kind of, you know, like the Horcrux moment in Harry Potter where you're to call to mind a particular moment. And it doesn't have to be from a perfect person because there is no such person, but one lovely moment. Does that make sense? All right. closed, just take a moment to settle into your body. Finding your breath, where you can feel it most keenly and vividly. For most of us, that's in the belly. For some, it's at the tip of your nose. So feel your breath. as it enters your body. And trusting in the body to breathe itself. And as you find the breath and hear the music, let the stream of your thoughts settle down. a thought occur, simply let it pass as you would when you're cloud watching. You see the thought, you don't try to push it away or react to it, you just let it pass. seen, cherished, loved. And imagine it as taking place right now. And your only task is to open yourself up to receiving this warmth, this care, cherishing.
center you deeply, imagining it as a radiant and embracing warm light that is warming your entire being. You can feel it entering your skin, your fat tissue, your muscles, membranes, bones and marrow. Let it enter your mind and heart, letting it wash over any feelings of anxiety or worry or even feelings of unworthiness, just receiving. And if it helps to have some words go with this, say to yourself, Just return to the moment and the power of that moment and receive. And just for a few moments, receive without any language from me. your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to extend the love that you just received to all those who need you to do likewise. Thank you. Thank you, John. That was uh, wonderful. So, this brings us to the end.
just want to thank our wonderful speakers, John and Maria. Thank uh, you. Of course, the brilliance. And a few other folks also. We have uh, the uh, uh, Office of Communications from uh, the Episcopal Church here who recorded that. Thank you very much. Thank and you. our sound engineers, uh, the folks of our congregation of uh, St. Savior who has uh, been our, uh, our nest to get this thing uh, started, and uh, the cathedral staff, everybody, and of course, everybody that's here tonight as well. Thank you very much, and um, we'll see you soon. Yes. Thank you, and go into the world in peace. <laughs>